I have not one time gone in with any law enforcement where it's like, no, you have to give us your, your weapons when they've been in crisis. Let's say they're going to hire 700 officers this year. I don't know how many they're going to hire, but you know, let's say the number's like 700 or 400 or something. You know, could you, could you, instead of 400, could you hire 390 and have 10 clinicians? You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome to the Walk the Talk America Guns and Mental Health Podcast, everybody. Thank you to our listening audience for, again, downloading our content and sharing it around because that's how people get help, is by promoting what we offer. And we do this for free because it's better in your ears than uh, locked up in our heads. So today we have with us a couple of professional counselors, if you will. How, How professional are you guys? Are you really professional? Sort of. Well, it says profession, professional in our title. Yeah, professional in our title. <laughs> Licensed professional counseling. <laughs> That's what the license says, anyway. Uh, so we have we have Christy and Ryan. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves in a minute. Uh, Mike, hello. Nice to see you. Hey. It's good to see you. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, been, been a few days. <laughs> I mean, been a few days on, on video and audio, at least. We, we text pretty much every day about all the things that we do at WTTA. Uh, well, but here we are, and uh, we're, we're going to be talking about how clinicians partner with law enforcement to help individuals in mental health crises uh, so that they don't level up to arrests or jail time, and, um, and we want to try to you know, make being sick not illegal, right? I think, I think there's been a, a little bit of a tilt toward that, so that being our our tee up. Um, Christy, I know you the best. You're here in Northern Nevada. I'll let you introduce yourself first. Go for it. Okay, so I am Christy Butler. I am the supervisor for the mobile outreach safety team. That stands for, um, well, the mobile outreach safety team. We call them most. So the, the individuals, the clinicians on our team are called most workers. And we are paired with law enforcement and we go out and ride with them for their 10-hour shifts and address critical incident calls, crisis calls. Um, and we also go to calls that they go to that is considered in their beat. So car accidents, um, deaths, you name it, we go with them. So we do that for, uh, we have coverage seven days a week. We do a day shift. And we do a swing shift. So we were working on graveyard, but that hasn't happened. So we were looking at that before before COVID. So we'll readdress that again when we're back full time. And you work for the county, and our county is Washoe, and you span multiple agencies. Uh, but how, how many of you are there? So we have four clinicians, and then myself, and then a case manager. So six total then. So we have a, to- a total team of six. 
and we work with Sparks and we work with Reno. And then we're in the process of working with um, the sheriff's office here locally as well. Awesome. And then we have Ryan Hale and you're from Colorado. So uh, feel free to introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, I'm Ryan Hale. I'm a licensed professional counselor and I work uh, for a nonprofit uh, organization that places um, counselors with um, our county sheriff's department, with um, uh, local ambulance service, and then three different police departments in our area. Um, I happen to be in kind of a smaller town. Um, we're outside. We're outside Denver in the Front Range, and um, it, it depends. We have seven uh, seven counselors that work with us, and um, the folks that work with uh, the sheriff's department actually ride with the sheriff's department because they count, they cover the whole County. Um, our police departments, um, typically they'll, they'll, um, they'll work independently. So sometimes we will ride. Um, if I happen to be in the, at the police station or with an officer, when the call comes through, I'll jump in a car with them. Otherwise I, um, will respond, uh, on my own. Um, and whether or not, whether or not there's an officer there depends on whether we've been to that location before. It depends on how well we know uh, the, the person calling. Um, it, uh, it depends on kind of the nature of the, of the call. And so um, sometimes I'm there independently by myself. Sometimes I'm, I'm with an officer in the car. Sometimes I respond uh, on my own or, or separate from, a, from, a, from law enforcement, but they're usually there when I get there. I want to get into the details of what it is you guys do here in a second, but first, the the first thing that struck my ears is the funding source. So, Ryan, I think you said you're a nonprofit. How, how do you get your funding? So, I work for an organization that um, we're largely grant funded, and we've managed to put together a number of grants to fund this whole program. Um, the The organization I work for is is um, is is great. They're constantly looking for ways that they can. Um, perform outreach or fill uh, gaps or voids in the community. And this was, this was one of the things that was on their radar a few years ago, you know, politically in the news and things we've been talking about, um, you know, defunding police and putting, you know, having more mental health workers and things, but um, we've been doing this for three years now. And there are places that have been doing it for longer than that. And uh, if I could remember to unmute myself, because I'm a really good host, (laughs) Uh, Christy, you're working for government, right? .gov. <laughs> and uh, you guys get your funding from where? So we are also grant funded. It comes through the state. It's through general funds through the state. How is that a grant? And as I think it, it, most people's perception, they think of grants as like some uh, entity, you apply, they give you a lump sum of money, you have to spend it and then like report back on the results or whatever. Um, but, it, but it comes from the state. How does that differ? Um, that's exactly what we do. So we, we have to reapply for the grant. Um, so my boss, Dorothy Edwards, is uh, working the legislative process stuff right now. Um, and then we, lots of data, we keep track of everything. And we got to prove why, why most is good and we deserve that money. You, what is the benefit to the community and law enforcement as well? Yeah, let, let's talk about some of the metrics that you, you use to pr- quote unquote prove that what you're doing is working. Because I think, like, it seems like common sense, right? You go there with a professional who's literally trained to de escalate people. Um, it seems obvious, but how do you, how do you prove that? 
Well, I think that's honestly what we're looking at now. So we have a lot of contacts. We engage constantly, lots of crisis calls, a lot of um, individuals that we encounter often, a revolving door. Um, so what, what is the benefit of us engaging with them? So that's what we're looking at. How do we prove that we stop these individuals from going to jail? You know, that's kind of hard to, to determine. Um, we're trying to reduce the times that they go to the hospital, right? Because that's a revolving door as well. Mm-hmm. Our ERs are full of individuals waiting for mental health treatment or substance use treatment. So trying to reduce that as well. And so it, it, it's a huge, huge issue looking at if you have programs like ours out on the street and we're able to deescalate, then what? Where do we where do we put these individuals? They might not need to go inpatient, but they need somebody right now. And if your community doesn't have those services, right? How do we prove that we we are of value? Yeah, and and it's not that Northern Nevada doesn't have them; it's that we're often overrun. Oh, absolutely! I think yeah. So what 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 is the answer? And I'll kick it back to Ryan. Are you guys fa- facing the same thing? Are your are your data collection requirements similar? And like how how do you go about speaking that? Yeah. So we um we're we we collect a lot of data and we try to uh, you know we try to show the numbers that we're able to produce and you know one of those is um, one of those is an opinion number. Do we feel like the the person probably would have been arrested, or do we feel like the person probably would have gone to the emergency room? So that's that's a little bit subjective, but it's also based on you know um, what the officers tell us because a lot of times we'll talk after the after an incident and the officer will say, well, yeah, if you hadn't a, of uh, arranged for them to go to you know this crisis center, then I probably would have taken them to the hospital or you know whatever. So we um, we try to keep track, and it's a little bit subjective as far as like would they have been arrested? Would would anything have happened? Would they have gone to the emergency room? Um, and then we also keep track of total time because a lot of times we'll spend thirty minutes with a person, but we'll spend an hour um, coordinating care, you know, calling their physician or or yeah. setting up you know counseling service or something. So. We keep track of, of uh, client time, then we keep track of total time also. And then um, one of the other things that we keep, try to keep track of is officer time. And so if mm-hmm. I go on scene and there's four officers, and then three of them say, well, I guess we can probably clear and, and go do something else, and then only one officer stays with me, we keep track of how much officer time we save. So that would be, you know, that might be an hour times three um, if three officers showed up and they don't have to stay there for an hour. Um, and so we try to keep track of, you know, did, uh, did EMS have to go on standby or did we have to call them at all or did they come? But because I was there to, to deal with the mental health part of it, they were able to, uh, you know, to clear and, and uh, go back in service. So we, we try to keep track of, of how much we're able to save the system, um, you know, when, when we can. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to, uh, you know, to keep track of all those numbers. And, and it's not always up to us. I mean, sometimes, you know, a SWAT team might show up. Well, I didn't call them, but, um, you know, so, uh, so sometimes it's, it's kind of out of our hands, like who shows up or how many officers are, you know, end up being there or whatever. We try to, we try to give some kind of a good idea of, you know, there were three officers here and it took an hour, but, you know, two of them were able to leave before we got done. And, and so we freed them up, you know. So yours has to do with dollars in, in, in quantified by time spent on scene, right? And then uh, Christy, it sounds like yours is more like volume of contacts. Maybe is is that appropriate yeah. to separate? 
Yeah, we've never looked at, which is an interesting point, never looked at the law enforcement amount of time because we're with officers. So when we go there, um, it's pretty common that when we are um, requested by officers and we get there, lots of times they can leave. But then it's not, you know, I don't want to have this impression that when we get there, if we get on scene and there's an officer that already has a rapport with that person, I'm not going to jump in and try and rebuild the rapport. Mm. I'm going to coach that officer to kind of ask some of the questions and direct them on um, where we want to take it. Right. So if they already have that rapport, there's no reason to spend an extra 30 minutes for me to try or another clinician to try and build that rapport. Right. Um, and the officer's also learning as they're engaging as well. Okay. Mike was going to jump in. I have a question because I think, you know, I, and I noticed this in the, the firearms industry a lot is that there is still this belief that um, mental illness can be identifiable and people who are about to be violent are identifiable. And, and it's almost like they, they give the power over to the mental health clinicians. Like they know, right. Um, how, <laughs> how hard is it to, identify if it is a mental health crisis, you know, like, like, so if you're already with the police officer and you're on a call, like that's a little easier, but like, how does it, does the officer determine that? Like, okay, this is obviously a mental health issue. I'm, I'm going to defer. So for, for our program, at least we, we get referrals from all different places. Um, I get email referrals from family members, different agencies. Um, when we're with patrol, the, the calls will come from dispatch as well. So somebody's calling into dispatch saying there's a person naked, naked in the street dancing around down on 4th Street, right? And they're throwing rocks at cars. So we would assume that there's either mental health issues or substance use issues going on. And so dispatch is going to find the officer that has the most worker and send us to that call. Then you have other officers that will go to a call, a normal call in their beat. They arrive, say it's a domestic violence call. And then they'll say, is there a most worker available? They're requesting most because they've observed some behaviors that are bizarre to them. They're not sure, okay, what do I do with this? Um, they're not answering correctly or they're not responding. And so that's why they call us. And we just go off the behaviors. Is it mental health? Is it substance use? Is it a combination of both? We're just trying to de-escalate the behaviors that are presented to us. Is that your experience too, Ryan? Um, yeah. Very often it's the officer's judgment if they feel like there, there might need to be something more. Um, so, you know, like a lot of times they'll get called on a welfare check and, and the person might not be in, in immediate imminent danger. Um, but the officer might determine, you know, it'd, it'd be helpful if, if somebody followed up with this person because right this very moment they're okay, but we want to make sure that they're going to be okay tomorrow too, you know. Um, and so a lot of times it's just the officer's um you know, judgment. Uh, there, you know, when I'm working, I'm always monitoring the radio. And so sometimes if I hear like, oh, family conflict or something, you know, like I'll get in my vehicle and start to move that way. And I'll let dispatch know like, hey, I'm staging in the area if they need me, um, you know, then then I'm here. And sometimes they'll, they'll determine that they don't. Um, sometimes they'll say, yeah, go ahead and come on in. Um, so it's just, it's basically, you know, officers, uh, um, you know, judgment for the most part. How do you work within the, the the confines of your profession? And uh, and this may be a little offbeat for the listening audience, but uh, I'm curious. And so, you know, because I'm one of the hosts, I get to ask. But how do you work within the confines of your professional ethics and your license while also attending to the 
uh, law enforcement matters at hand. Uh, and, and if this needs clarifying, there are certain things that in our job, say if I have somebody in the office, I, I don't get to go running the police just because uh, some 16-year-old told me that he uh, I don't know, lit, lit fire to the carpet in the school hallway and didn't get caught. That's um, confidential. I don't get to report on crimes uh, unless they're imminently threatening to self or others. You guys are going to see this unfold, and it's like you might look in there and, uh, you know, see something that maybe the officer doesn't pick up. How, how does that all work out? Big pregnant pause. Well, <laughs> I'm, so I'm trying to think it's, it's rare that officers don't pick up on things. Mm. Um, and then if it is a critical crisis, imminent danger type thing, um, I don't think there's an issue because we are, we're going to do everything that we can to keep that person safe or other people safe. Um, I think that the majority, I would say 99.9% of the time, the law enforcement that I've been with, that we work with, they don't want to jack people up. When people are in crisis, they're not, the goal is not to get them to jail. They have been amazing and supportive and would rather get them help than to take them to jail or to juvie or whatever it may be. So I really haven't I personally, and I've been doing this almost nine years now, have not come across um, that battle that I would have to have with myself and an officer completely disagreeing, you know, on, on what to do with the person because they've always been supportive. Ryan's nodding in the corner there of the screen that the listening audience can't see. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's <clears throat> um, I've I've. I've always, you know, felt supported. Um, you know, the officers, a lot of times they'll say, this is what we think, but what, what do you think? Or, um, I'll, you know, if I say, okay, they don't meet your criteria to be put on a mental health hold, but this is why I would like to do that. Um, and, um, and they've, they've always, they've been really good as far as crisis goes and things like privacy rules and, and things like, um, you know, if, if it's in the middle of an emergency, um, we're allowed to discuss things with the officers that I normally as a counselor wouldn't be able to just, uh, call up the police department and say, Hey, by the way, so-and-so has a, a gun or something. Um, you know, I, it, I, it, the, 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 the federal privacy laws are a little bit looser in the moment of crisis. And so there are times where, you know, where we have to be careful that we give them, you know, just the information that we, that, that is relevant and we don't give them the whole, you know, they don't, they don't need the whole, uh, um, uh, you know, thing from us as far as, you know, this is their assessment and this is their history. And this is their, you know, uh, if it's relevant, if they need to know that, then, then we can tell them. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, we try to respect people's privacy. And of course we try to comply with federal privacy laws. Uh, but at the same time, if I know something about a client that's potentially dangerous to an officer or to themselves or something, I'm, I'm allowed to, to divulge that. And so we have information that goes back and forth pretty, pretty freely, but it, it, you know, it, it must stay relevant. It must stay in the moment. Um, it must be pertinent to the, the immediate crisis. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of where you're going with that question, but it, it is. And I, and I think I'm going to geek out a little bit here on the, the clinical side uh, because <laughs> I have two other clinicians on the screen with me. Uh, I think what 
we've encountered, I'm a supervisor of interns and, and students, and, and I think that there's a lot of hesitation by supervisors to allow their interns or their associates, you know, who are licensed professionals and are operating under somebody else's license, to go and do something innovative like this type of program, because the traditional model is sign the consent, sign the release of information to talk to other people who are not me. Uh, and there's this very formulaic process that doesn't apply in crisis mode. And some of these are not always according to Hoyle crises. Uh, some of it's just a an intervention where somebody a little bit more skilled in the profession needs to intercede as opposed to the, the law enforcement person. And I think that the supervisor's hesitation is like, oh, you're going to breach their privacy and my license is going to be on the line. There's going to be some complaint to the board because you talked to the officer about uh, what the kid disclosed about his bullying at school. And then, you know, were you treating, quote unquote, in that moment? And and there's just all this weird language worked in. It was like, is it a treatment? Is, did they have the parents consent? And I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit more about that with regard to like, you know, showing up at a school or a family home where the, the child is you know, throwing objects at the parents or threatening the, the baby or whatever, you know, how, how do you, how do you work with that within the bounds of what we just laid out? Well, I think, um, so for us, it is, um, we don't have to do a consent to treat. When we do is when we refer somebody to our case manager and she is taking them on, she gets the ROI, she gets everything completed for them to get them connected to services. But a lot of the individuals that we deal with, we encounter often, we know them well, we know who their case manager is, we know what court program they're in. And so we're able to call that person and say, hey, you know, we saw so-and-so downtown, he was a call for service, she was a call for service, you know, they're escalating again, could you make contact with them, whatever it may be. But we also, if, you know, and I'm sure it's probably the same with Ryan, if we come across a situation where a CPS report needs to be made and EPS report needs to be made. That's happening right away. Um, we, we do many, many EPS reports, not as many CPS reports, but hmm. many EPS reports. That's really fascinating. I want to come back to that, but I want to hear Ryan's take on this first. I've, uh, um, I try to build relationships and I try to network a lot. And so I go to the local schools and I meet with, uh, with the mental health counselors and the, and the guidance counselors over there. I usually follow um, clients or, or uh, into the emergency room at the local hospitals, um, and so I try. I've, I've uh, managed to build a rapport with the physicians uh, there, and so when they see me coming, um, they they know why I'm there and who I am, um, and so that and and like the school resource officers and things like that, and that that just allows um, us to demonstrate that we have people's interest in mind that I'm not just telling the police or I'm not just going to, and telling the doctor, but I'm trying to talk with the doctor so that we can coordinate your care. Or, um, you know, I've, I've, I've met with, uh, with parents before and had the, the school resource officer call me and say, Hey, you met with this parent. She's coming in to talk with the uh, school counselor about their daughter. Would you, would you want to come in and, and be a part of that since you've already dealt with the family a little bit? And, um, and so we, we try to um, just build relationships. And so that, you know, if I'm working with some, you know, with a, with a kid that's in the school system, I've also worked with that, you know, school, the school resource officer. I've probably worked with their physician. I've, you know, I've, I've tried to coordinate care with them and I've built those relationships. And so for me, I try to, to just keep a, a, a really good network so that um, it's not such an issue of 
you know, who wants this information? Why are they asking? And, and what business is it of theirs? And, you know, it, it just makes it, uh, you know, much easier to say, Hey, do you mind if I talk to your, with your guidance counselor? Cause I have to go over to the school tomorrow and I'm going to see them, you know, so I'm able to ask, you know, a student, uh, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm able to, you know, to talk to a, a patient and say, Hey, I'm going to talk with the doctor. Um, you know, is it okay if I tell them this or, or, you know, so it's, it's more, uh, I mean, of course we, we try to be formal and follow the law and follow the rules and regs, but it, it's also a matter of kind of, 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 of relationships and, and, um, and, and, you know, trying to, you know, trying to let the, the patient know that we have their, their best interests in mind, that we're not just, we're not just talking to this person and this person and this person over, you know, that, um, you know, so that's, that's how I, that's how I try to do it. Well, so speaking of that, like, you know, the more you're out in the community and the more you're driving around and the more you're going to incidents, right. You're going to have, um, I, I don't want to say repeat offenders, right. That sounds like they're, they're, they're in a crime or something, but I'm just saying like high utilizers. Okay. Yes. Right. Or so you develop, you probably, I mean, I, I could see this becoming a personal relationship. I told a story, I think it was last week, Jake, right. About Bruce Springsteen, the girl yeah, I was yeah. dating her yeah. father. I, I real fast just to get you guys up to speed. Cause I want to, I want to relate it to like what you guys do is uh, I dated a girl in high school and I went to her house one day and her father had a million pictures of Bruce Springsteen. Her father was a cop. <laughs> and I'm like, he's probably really good friends with Bruce Springsteen. Huh? She's like, yeah, they're, they're really close. And I was like, well, how did they get close? She's like, well, he used to get arrested a lot. And my dad was the officer that always arrested him. And she's like, they're so, they were so close at one point that when Bruce, cause he would raise hell, like, he would just show up and Bruce would let himself into the back of the car. <laughs> they would drive away. So I, I think like, you know, it's a very cute story. And I mean, it all worked out for Bruce, but, but, you know, you have to have developed some kind of relationship, especially with somebody that you've seen over and over again. And I would assume that maybe they want you if they're in crisis. Does that ever happen? Mm-hmm. Ryan, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, you know, I give, I readily give my, my work number out and I tell people I'm not a 24 hour crisis hotline, but you know, if you call me, I'll, I'll return your message or I'll answer or I'll text you or whatever, you know? Um, so I, I give, I give my number out and I do have people who, uh, instead of calling dispatch, cause that's what they used to do. Um, sometimes they'll just call me and I'll, you know, there are times where I'll spend half an hour or an hour on the phone with them and they'll, they'll feel good about the interaction and they'll say, okay, I feel better. And, and in that case, we didn't have to involve law enforcement at all, um, you know, and, and or I'll encourage them because usually when we interact with anybody, we try to get them enrolled in services. Um, and so usually, you know, when these people call, say, hey, I don't mind talking to you um, and I'll spend, like I said, maybe an hour on the phone with them. But then I say, you know, make sure you follow up with your outpatient therapists. You know, do you have an, when's, when's your next appointment? Tuesday? OK, bring this up with your outpatient therapist when you talk to them on Tuesday, you know, um, so. Uh, we have we have people that will call dispatch and ask for us and dispatch will patch patch them straight through to my cell phone um and sometimes we'll just bypass ems or sometimes we'll just bypass uh law enforcement if we if we can it's it's pretty similar with ours as well we i have ones that i have been engaging with for as long as i've been doing this um i think we all have our favorites you know that that are, are close to our heart but we um we get a lot of referrals from officers, just like you were talking about, that have built that relationship with somebody, right? And then they're kind of stuck. So they built this awesome relationship. They engage with them all the time, but they want to get them help. 
but they don't know where to turn to. So they request us as well. But what's amazing is law enforcement has already built that relationship with them. And so they like trust us automatically because they trust this law enforcement officer. I have, oh, that's, that's really cool. I have so many yeah. questions in my head. Um, the, and I do, I, I do want to get back to the EPS thing. Um, but this is so critical because I think that there's this narrative, uh, A, that like what Christy was talking about, like cops really do want to help. And I think there's this narrative. It's like, no, they just want to hook them and book them. And, and we hear that on social media and all this like stuff that goes on. And it's not true. It's just, it's just fundamentally not true, uh, except for the ones that hit the news. Right. And then the other thing is we want to make sure that people feel that they're safe and that they can reach out when need be. And all I hear in my head is the indoctrination that I got in, in college and in our grad programs. And then from supervisors say, don't you ever give your phone number out, um, have good boundaries and all that stuff. And you're not a crisis line. So, uh, help me, help me work through the idea of like, if somebody reaches out to you in a moment of crisis, they call that work phone, they don't get you. And then something bad happens. Um, that seems to be the, the, the sticking point on why a lot of these supervisors don't want to let their interns go do this stuff. Cause like, I'm going to get sued by the family for whatever. Well, like I said, I, I, I let them know I'm not a 24 hour crisis hotline. Mm -hmm. I will return your call when I can, or when I, when I see your message. Um, you know, if, if I'm not working, go ahead and call 911. Go ahead and call dispatch if you need to. Um, don't hesitate to call the crisis hotline number that I gave you, you know. And then on our on our voice message, of course, we tell people, if you're in crisis, uh, go to your nearest emergency room or call 911. Um, so we, we try to cover those bases. That's, we do the same as well. We really try to funnel everything through dispatch, uh, the say non-critical non-emergency referrals we get a lot of those through the email or people calling so we don't have a central number it's usually dispatch but if you call me and you get my message it, it says if you are in crisis please you know call 911 and then for us for family members i think when i first started there was um, a family member that had called my work cell phone and said hey you know, my daughter just attempted suicide. And the officer that I was with was like, oh, that's a 911. Why are they calling you? So that was like a big learning lesson. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we stress that constantly. If it is a crisis, if it's an emergency, somebody's attempt, whatever it may be, you call 911 and you can request a most worker. Now there's only one of us on at a time, but if we're available, we will go to that call. The, the officer that we're with will try and take us to that call as well. How, how worried are you about liability? I'm not. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, we we try to cover all of our bases, and um, and and I mean, it's a standard. It's a standard. If I was seeing somebody in a private practice, you know, like, you know, um, part, you know, in my private practice, in my on my disclosure statement, I tell them like, here are the crisis hotline numbers, and here's your nearest emergency room, and and here are the addresses of the other emergency rooms of the other hospitals, and and um, you know, and so I, I do the same thing working in this situation as I would in private practice. I I, I appreciate that more than you know because I think there's this. Uh this fear that we're supposed to be on call all the time for everyone and be treated like a hospital. And it's like, we're, we're not a hospital. That would be, there would be very poor boundaries and a very poor communication of those boundaries, especially when we're trying to teach people boundaries. Like, 
um, how do we how do we do that when we don't have any of our own? So it's very validating to hear that, and um, I appreciate you saying that. Um, coming back to the EPS thing, e- EPS is uh, Elder Protective Services, right? The C is for children, and uh, E is for elders. Why are there so many elder calls that you deal with, Christy? Oh my goodness, we we have a huge increase in our elder calls. So I don't know if it's what the the reasoning is. I don't know, but we have a lot of age-related issues going on out there. Um, and then we have a lot of family members who live out of state who are calling in welfare checks. Um, they don't want to lose the house. They don't, what, whatever the reasoning may be. So there's nobody local to support them. And so if, if somebody has age-related stuff going on, dementia, whatever, right? They're not supposed to meet criteria for a legal hold. And so then what do you do? Insurance. I mean, I can go on and on about the elder situation. So what we do is when we come across those situations, we do what we can and we put in a referral for EPS to go out and engage. Uh, Problem is EPS goes out, they knock on the door, the elder person might or might not open the door. They might open the door and tell them to F off. I don't need your help. And then they say, okay, bye. Well, we can't force them to take services. So again, they're another call for service. I know we, um, we work very closely with Sparks in their, their calls for service with some of the elder population. And you name it, boy, we have tried everything to try and reduce those calls for service. And um, it's a drain. It's a drain on the system. And it's a, it's a drain on law enforcement, REMSA, fire, you name it. And EPS as well, because they're going out knocking on these doors and then getting told no, and then they leave. And then the next two days, we're putting in another one. I encourage anybody that comes across an elder person that has some issues to make that report. What uh, what, what are the issues, if we could get a little more specific? is I My mind went straight to violence. I was thinking you know, elderly people were getting beat up or whatever by their caregivers, but it's not that. No. If anything, it's the opposite. Um, oh. <laughs> so. They, they can become very aggressive, especially with some age-related stuff, right? Um, and then the caregivers that they do have are not sticking around long. And then that paranoia coming in with some age-related stuff, um, they're stealing from me, family's stealing from me, I won't talk. And then they're still driving. And you got family members who are actually local saying, my gosh, my parents should not be driving. What do we do? And so they're taking the keys and then the elder person's calling, somebody stole my car, somebody stole my keys, somebody, you know, wow. and so a vicious cycle. And this is just one small percentage of what law enforcement deals with, with all the other stuff is the elder population. That's amazing. Are you, are you encountering that too, Ryan? Yeah, we have a large retirement uh, community where, where I work. And um, I think two issues are going on. Number one, if someone has age related dementia, um, a lot of times it's, it's beneficial to find a, a dementia specific placement for them in, in a nursing home or something. And those are, those are limited. There's not, there's not a whole lot of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and the other thing, and I don't know if there's a solution to this, but you know, I don't want to put my grandmother in a nursing home five years before she needs to go. So, right. you, you know, you want to, you, you typically wait until the very last day that she can possibly live on her own before we say, okay, let's, let's do something with, with, with grandma, you know? Um, and so I, I think a lot of times it, it kind of gets to that point where it's like, okay, we've, we've had to be over here every day this month. Maybe it's time for, you know, to talk to the family about talking about, you know, placing them in a nursing home or something. So I think part of it's just the nature of, of, um, you know, of our older folks is like, nobody, nobody wants to say, well, let's, let's do this 
five years before we need to, you know, like, you know, I, when I think about the older people in my family, like I want them to be able to live independently up until the very last day that they're, you know, when they're not able to, then let's do something, you know? So, and, and I don't know, that's just kind of the nature of, of, the, of that situation, but. I want to, I want to kind of shift gears and, and kind of go into red flag laws. Yeah. Cause it, 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 it kind of relates. So the firearms community, the 2A gun culture, Second Amendment people, um, we we are definitely afraid of red flag laws uh, to, for, to weaponize, you know, to be used against us. Um, uh, red flag laws are, are pretty much talked about as if they're like one one big law. You know, they don't no one ever really breaks them down by state. We just talk about how bad they are. Um, but it's really interesting because when when someone that's from the community has to face the fact that maybe they have to red flag like a family member um it's kind of like an episode of the twilight zone right it's something now you as as mental health professionals um and i don't know what your thought thoughts are about red flag laws whether you're for them or against them um but there are those times i'm sure where you've gone into a crisis and you let's say you are just you know, you're, you're for the second amendment and not taking away people's things, but you're in that moment where you have to make that, that tough decision. Um, I mean, how do you feel about those? (laughs) Well, I can say that we're not put in that position. Um, I think even law enforcement. So when law enforcement goes in and somebody's having a crisis, I've never been with anybody that's like, hand over your weapons. They will encourage them to give their weapons to family members that can lock them up. Um, And this has just been my experience, okay? Um, They will encourage that person. So they, one of the things that I think is misunderstood is that yes, the clinicians were valuable out there, but the skills that a lot of law enforcement have dealing with people constantly in crisis, right? They build rapport with a lot of people who are in crisis and are able to de-escalate them themselves and will actually talk to them about the benefits of giving their weapons to somebody else, mm. to their best friend for a month and then readdressing it in a month, right? Those have been my experiences. I have not one time gone in with any law enforcement where it's like, no, you have to give us your, your weapons when they've been in crisis. Now, if it's legal and there was something going on legal wise, and that's, that's something, you know, completely different. Right. Why had to experience that? Why not? Because, and I asked this, like, if, if the messaging is guns are dangerous, save people, take them away for a temporary period of time. Let's, let's forget all the due process stuff. Let's go straight to the presumptive intervention strategy that says, take, take the guns away and everybody's going to be safe. Why aren't they pushing that? Well, I think, you know, so I can't speak for law enforcement, right? I know that the process, and I don't know the exact, the exact process now is that if we, say we legal somebody, so Jake, you're having a bad day, we place you on a legal 2000. From my understanding before, and I don't know the new law now is that that is not enough to take away your weapons. It has to be a court ordered process. Right. So I can legal you once a month. And I can tell you, we do that for a lot of individuals and you go to the hospital, you even make it to a mental health facility, but you stay there for a certain amount of time and the court does not have to order you to stay in that program for that amount of time, right? And so 
from my understanding before, then there's no legal reason to take the weapons. Yeah. It has to be court ordered. You are mandated into treatment. Now, I'm not sure if that's still what the law is. Honestly, I don't know, but that's, that was my understanding before. Yeah. And, and for people who aren't understanding the lingo le- to legal, someone is the reference to the legal 2000 that, that Christy uh, mentioned. It's a, it's a colloquialism for the, the form or the process by which we do an involuntary psychiatric admission for a person who's in a mental health crisis who needs to go to a higher level of care than simple outpatient talk therapy, meaning they have to go to a hospital and there's this legal order that says, you're sick and we're going to make you get well, or at least go get treatment and hopefully get well. Um, That's separate and apart from the court order, which is to remove guns from the home. And the court order is a protection order. So you may have heard of quote unquote restraining orders. Those are typically called protection orders. So there's a temporary protection order against a violent ex or whatever. uh, And then there's an extended protection order. Well, these new things are called ERPOs, E-R-P-O, extreme risk protection order. And it is a legal order, just like a protection order says you can't be within 500 feet of the person or whatever. This one says you can't have your firearms for however long. And again, all states are different. Um, But, but the idea is it's a legal action upon you, similar to a, an order to admit the court isn't intervening. It's actually the, the admission to psychiatric care at a hospital is up to the doctor to do the evaluation to admit you. And then you're um, you're supposed to stay there for up to 72 hours until you uh, don't meet criteria anymore, and then you can get discharged. So there's, there's definitely two different things going on. And for clinicians, our job, and Ryan, we were talking about this before, um, th- we're all about patient autonomy and people's rights and ability to choose for themselves, whether they want to continue care or adjust their treatment plan, uh, all sorts of things. So when we, when we step in and, and step on somebody's rights to choose for themselves what they want to do, we're, we're inherently violating one of our five core ethical principles in our profession, which is the ethic of autonomy. Um, regardless of whether we're committing, we don't have hospital admission privileges, we're not doctors, but we can certainly highly recommend and then the doctor would usually follow our recommendation that they admit to care against their will, which is a violation of autonomy, but we're in that moment presuming that we know best for them. Or we can recommend to the court or the law enforcement or the family member can recommend to the court their guns get taken away. And what I'm hearing is that's just not really the case. It's it, We would rather defer to lowest level of intrusiveness into a person's life to help them stabilize so that they don't lose their rights, whether it's the right to live life in their own home and not in a hospital or the right to continue holding their guns because they enjoy shooting their guns and they're therapeutic and they're not necessarily a risk. But I, I I'm curious to, to hear your take on this too, Ryan, because I don't know if it's like, if your law enforcement people are as deferential as, as Christie's. I think, I think where we get frustrated is when the family should really be having a conversation with the other, you know, with the member of the family they're concerned about. It's almost like because of the red flag laws, it's like, oh, now we can just ask the police to get involved, or now we can just ask the, a judge to get involved. And and you know, we've been in situations where you know I'm going out, and Adult Protective Services are going out, and the and the county sheriff is going out, and we're all looking at each other and we're saying, why isn't the family sitting down and having this conversation with this person? Like, why are we, you know, why why are we doing this for, you know, I, I mean, we we want to we want to do good customer service, we want to help people out, but there are times where I think, you know, it's, it's just easy to, 
you know, rely on, well, this is the system or this is the law or, or, you know, let the, let the police do it or, you know, it's lazy. Um, and that, that was, that, that was a part, that was a part of a bigger conversation. They needed to talk about this person in, living independently and whether or not they were safe and, you know, um, but you know, I think it was, I think it was a, re- it's a really well-intended law. I think the people who made that law, it's, it has good intentions. You know, we always say after a drunk driving accident, well, why, why didn't somebody take the keys or, you know? Um, and so it's, it's the same thing after some kind of gun violence is why, why didn't somebody take the gun? And so it sounds, it sounds good, but you know, there was one example where we went out to someone's house and knocked on the door and said, are you inside? The man said, yes. We said, um, do you have your guns? Yes. Uh, were you making suicidal statements or something earlier? Yes. Well, are you going to hurt yourself now? No. He's talking to us through the door. Okay. Well, um, I guess we could bust down the door and force his action or force the police to have some kind of action. Um, I, you know, he won't come out. So we just turned around and left. Right. I mean, you know, and so I, I don't think when they, when they, you know, when the law was made or when, when people were discussing it, that a situation like that would come up, like, you know, are you supposed to force this person to, you know, if, if we break down the door, somebody could get hurt. And so what, you know, what are we supposed to do in, in a situation where it's like, are we supposed to, you know, here was this person sitting watching TV with their gun, um, undisturbed until we showed up and knocked on the door, you know, so like, right. are we supposed to create a situation, right. you know? So, um, and, and honestly, like, I don't, I'm not part of that whole process of enforcing or, you know, red flag laws or, or doing an evaluation that says, yes, take this, this person's guns or anything. But they just asked me if I would come along because they had the situation and I said, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, just to be clear, I'm not part of that whole process. Um, you know, that's just kind of my personal opinion about, you know, I feel like the law was well-intentioned, but when we talk about the difficulty of implementing it, a situation like that is, is what we're talking about. I think. Yeah. I've sorry. had, uh, sorry, did, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. It's okay. Oh, I was just going to say, I think Ryan brings up a really good point about it. We in, encounter the same thing. Um, individuals in crisis, same with clinicians who have somebody where they want most to show up because they don't want to make that person mad. They don't want to talk to them about the tough things that's going on with their mental health and their behaviors and what's going on. And so they call law enforcement and then they expect law enforcement to have this magic fairy dust to sprinkle on them and everything's going to be okay. Um, So that I think Ryan brings up just an incredible point is that if you, your own loved one or even clinicians, we encounter that as well. They don't want to do a legal 2000 or they don't want to talk to this person and confront them on some of the stuff. Um, because they don't want them to get upset. And so law enforcement is called in situations where they should not be called. Um, so I just wanted to point that out that we, we engage with that as well. And it's like, how do we fix that? Yeah. I would assume that a lot of family members though, kind of just want to pass the ball to somebody else. So they're not the bad guy. If it does go South, right? Like, yeah, I didn't red flag you or I didn't get your guns taken away. You did that dad. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, but I, I, I do see what your point is. And it's, it's a very difficult topic because I've, I've talked with Metro before about red flag laws and I watched the look on their faces when they're like, yeah, I'm not going to go take people's guns. <laughs> like, it's just not something that they want to get involved in. I mean, I, I, just from the aspect of, like you said, Ryan, why do we want to create an issue if there's really no issue? Um, 
it's, 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 it's so tough. And, and I do think these things were, were made with, you know, in somebody's had great intention, but what we're discovering is this isn't working, right? It's, it's just like when you make a transfer law, you know, not thinking that, Hey, what about the time I have to hand my gun to my friend when I'm in crisis? Like, and he walks out the door with it. Now we're both felons because, you know, he was being a good guy and I was doing the right thing. You know, so these are the things that kind of backfire in our face when we don't really, when we rush these laws, we don't work together to make, you know, to, to, to tell people like, Hey, did you think about that part? Um, you know, that's the importance of working together. And that's kind of like what WTTA is all about is kind of like making people see like, oh, I never even thought about that, that, that could, this could affect people from underprivileged, underserved communities, or this could affect somebody who's trying to be a good Samaritan. Um, you know, going back to, yeah, we meant well. Well, and I think, you know, part of the, the bigger picture is there are so many points of failure in our system. You know, police, police might not take somebody into custody or I might play somebody on a mental health hold and then it gets released at the hospital or the physician might put them on a mental health hold, but then the diagnosing psychiatrist that evaluates them releases the hold or, you know, we want to get them into services, but it's three weeks until they can get placed at this, at this, uh, this place where they can get service, you know? And so there are just so many points of failure that is the issue. The fact that this person, you know, has a weapon in the house or they might hurt themselves. Um, and so we need a law to, to, to take that, you know, from them. Or is, is the bigger issue the fact that we have so many points of, of failure in a fragmented system? Well, that's a harder conversation. It takes more um, patience. It takes more time. Certainly a commitment of resources. And I don't necessarily mean tax-based resources, but you know, community agencies that are going to commit to it. It requires a, an insurance reevaluation of what types of care are going to be covered in what circumstances, and then we need the bodies to fulfill that care promise. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you here from Nevada, which is 51st in behavioral care and provision for many years running, and, it, and largely it's because of our provider deficiency. We, we, we'd love to do it, but we just don't have the people, um, it, which circles back to a, a topic we, we brushed against earlier, which is uh, what do you do after the intervention, right? So where, where do you send them, and how do we know that they're going to be well cared for and not just somebody checking a box so that they can bill insurance and uh, punch the the revenue ticket that's that uh, those are those are much harder conversations to have when you're talking about establishing infrastructure i think politically it's just easier and more convenient and expedient to the campaign for re-election when you go hey i passed this law celebrate me it's like yeah but did you do anything yeah so I, one of the things that jumps out to me is um like both of you saying like, this is how many we are, right? Like uh, it just seems like there should be way more. <laughs> I mean, I think of like, if you were like four, I think of like hostage negotiations, like how many often, how many times has a hostage situation happened? Maybe four people on staff is fine. You know, that can go out and negotiate a hostage. But I mean, now that we're kind of realizing we're moving into this movement of understanding mental health much better than we did. We got a long way to go but we are making strides in that, right? Like we, there was a time when it was kind of like, Hey, cops just do whatever, or, you know, not understand it, throw them around, like act like a, act like a man. Like that was my family's thing. Right. Like I, like I got that up my whole growing up my whole life. Um, but you know, as the more we start kind of peeling this back and seeing that, that there are issues and we're understanding things like depression and PTSD and anxiety, I mean, four to six to seven doesn't seem 
I like a lot. <laughs> I, I would assume you guys agree with me, right? Absolutely. And you, what you brought up about the negotiations. So there's two on our team that have been through the FBI school for negotiation with law enforcement. So we, we support them and we help, we train with them so that they understand mental health. They understand we role play. Um, Jake's been there a few times and he, mm-hmm. he does it well. So, um, it, you know, we're small, but we try and take advantage of the opportunities that we have. So when we're riding with law enforcement, and don't get me wrong, I want a bunch more. But when we are riding with law enforcement, they learn from us. They learn about all the resources. And when they're standing there and they're listening to us talk about, well, have you tried this place? Have you tried this place? Hey, I know your case manager here. And I don't know how many times at the end of a call, a law enforcement is like, I, I never even knew that existed. I'm putting that down. I'm putting that in my phone right now. And so when we're not there for graveyard or we're sick one day and we're not there, law enforcement has those skills. And they learn how, how we talk, our verbiage, you know, some of the words that we use and how we take a breath when somebody's in crisis and give them time to respond to us, you know, cause they're in crisis. So they need that little extra time to respond. And so law enforcement will repeat what we do. And they, they even teach that in their, in their academies now, you know, so that they have those skills coming fresh out of the academy as a brand new officer. Which I, we're also a little bit part of. So I, I appreciate you saying that, uh, you know, that I participate in that and I do a good job role-playing cause I, I really have worked on my emotional, character and my and my vomiting skills when i'm the uh the, the drunk uh meth yeah, addicted it's actually person. nauseating yeah <laughs> does he ever play the nude guy dancing in the street throwing rocks no. at if he does I, I will record it and send it to you <laughs> i have i have not i have not gone nude um i have i have taken off my shirt in a shower before and uh pitched myself up against a wall in a, a imaginary pool of my own vomit however <laughs> i i actually i actually wrestle with this because part of the defund the police thing was that the idea would I don't think anybody really like in their right mind wants to take away cops like outside of like libertarian anarchists or something or anarchist libertarians but um, I think the the premise was shuffle money away from um, law enforcement and the militarization of police into more human services focused uh, entities and, and interventions which which is fine but here we are doing de-escalation training and increasing it. And we had uh, we had a, a Reno police officer who is a marriage and family therapist intern on the podcast uh, named Brandon Casanelli, who gave a great analogy of the the police bat belt. Right? They they all have the, this belt, and it used to be you know back in the seventies when my dad was a cop uh, starting out, they had you know handcuffs and a baton and a, and, a, and a gun, and then it grew to. Uh, taser and then it grew to two sets of handcuffs and then it was um backup magazines for the firearm and then it was uh well now you need to have a uh, gloves for medical interventions and 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 then a mask and then and it's like well where does it stop and we're building in tool kits for speech and engagement and de-escalation that don't necessarily they're not necessarily visible on the on the belt on the utility belt um but we're we're equipping the officers to do more within the framework of their job description. And, and I don't know how I feel about that. While simultaneously, I'm like, this isn't your job. Like your job is to enforce the law, not to be medical interventionist, EMS, mm-hmm. social worker, therapist, uh, referral resource. Uh, it's like, Holy cow. Like where, where does it stop? And how do we, how do we, how do we keep this 
this horse from uh, the horse is already out of the barn, I guess. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. Cause I I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm doing the trainings and I know they're valuable because I want to equip the people who are eventually going to deal with this stuff anyway, to do it the best that they can teaching yield theory and that kind of thing. But it's like, gosh, are we just perpetuating the cycle? You know, last, last summer when people would ask me about like the whole, you know, what do you think about defending the police? And, you know, because I, I live with one foot in each, in each world, you right. know, I would tell them, you know, if you take a, a big department, like, you know, Los Angeles County or, you know, or the city of Los Angeles, let's say they're going to hire 700 officers this year. I don't know how many they're going to hire, but you know, let's say the number is like 700 or 400 or something, you know, could you, could you, instead of 400, could you hire 390 and have 10 clinicians? Like, is that a conversation that we could have? Like, does that seem reasonable? You know, like, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like the, I'm not the, you know, we need to double the police or I'm not the, you know, we just need all social workers out there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to say, okay, instead of 500 officers, could you hire 475 and bring in 25 social, you know, like, so that, that was always kind of my response, you yeah. know? Um, and, and as far as the training goes, you know, we, we have asked people to be more specialized. Um, you know, you used to be able to train a nurse 30 years ago in, in a year or two years. Now you get a master's in nursing. Now you can get a PhD in nursing, you know, um, you know, same thing with EMS. You could train a paramedic or an EMT in one semester. And now even our, our, um, our lowest basic level of EMT, you know, a lot of times will take one or two years in community college, you know, to, to train. Um, and so, you know, our, our dog handler, spent a year and a half training, you know, very specialized, uh, officer. We have a SWAT medic who, who trained in both areas, you know, medical and police. Could, could we, you know, is there an officer that, you know, uh, in each shift that could go for a year of mental health training and be the mental health specialist, you know, um, yeah, those are perhaps you know, you know those are innovative ideas. I think that again, you know, go back to my point about this takes time, and we have to set our eyeballs on ten years, not next election cycle. And I hate to bring it back to politics, but that seems to be where it lies. Where like people are just out for their own, you know, the, the policymakers they they're out for their own reelection bid, and they're not thinking long term. So I don't know if it's an ego battle or what, but it's um, it's clearly not working. I think, I think one of the, um, I don't want to say the upside, but I think one of the, one of the things that's going on is that the numbers are just becoming overwhelming. You know, it used to be, we'd say, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could send out a clinician or wouldn't it be nice if we had a system set up or if, if we allocated this money for this or whatever. But now it's at the point where it's like, we can't send an officer to manage everybody's lives every time they pick up the phone and call 911. You know, we can't. You know, we, we have to, you know, we're at the point where we have to do something like this, you know, um, it's, it's before it used to be nice if we could. And now it's like, we, we don't have the resources. We don't have the money. We don't have the, the, the number of officers. We don't, you know, um, so I think, I think politicians hands are going to be forced, um, so I think Ryan brings up a great point. I know with each agency here the staffing levels are horrible, right? Law enforcement agencies. So they're not only are they short staffed and dealing with all these mental health calls, you know, constantly having to work overtime. So it's a lot of stress on them. Uh, I think that for us, 
I know when I'm with patrol and we're out and I'm listening to the radio and you have three suicidal calls at once, right? Okay. So which one are we going to go to? Which one are we going to? Because we have three suicidal calls going on at once. And then we have somebody who's downtown um, who is a chronic individual that is now urinating on somebody and throwing feces at somebody. And so of course the officers want most, right? So we definitely need more. And how do we do that? But also how do we get society to be able to manage some of their own stuff? Just for me, personal experience, like we've talked about before, family members are afraid to address it. When we have professionals within our community who are afraid to address it, right? That does us no good. Yeah, that's such a tough. I mean, have you ever have you ever like seen someone throwing their feces and then told the officer, "No, that's perfectly normal behavior. We can get back in the car and leave." Yeah, no. Well, no, because we gotta. We absolutely. Have to deal with that. It. It, the problem is, is what's you know. I can. T- I don't know how many times we've dealt with individuals like that downtown, and then so what do we do? They are so far gone, uh, half naked, whatever, intoxicated, mania, whatever it may be. So Remsa's, we call Remsa. Remsa's annoyed. They got to glove up, gown up, get them, take them to the hospital. And then they're released within an hour. Right. They're a call for service again. So it's like what we are banging our heads against the wall constantly. How, what do we do? How do we help and support this person? You know, because that's what they need without just overtaxing each entity involved in our community. How much, how much is it rinse, wash, repeat? Like, like where you catch and release. Like, is that, does that happen a lot? Because a lot of people think like there's a lot of people that are under this misconception that when someone loses it, right. And they go into crisis that people can just do something, right. Like, like my ex-wife, she had a lot of issues with crisis. We were divorced at the time, but I remember people were saying like, isn't there something that somebody can do when, when she would choose to be homeless. And I remember I was with a police officer one time. He's like, he, he said it the best way he goes, man, Sometimes you have to sit back and watch the fireworks. That's, that's exactly what happens. I don't know how many, I, I don't want to say heartbreaking, but they're horrible conversations that myself and my team have to have with family members to where we cannot force your loved one to go get help right now. It has to become where it's critical and an emergency. And, it's, and then I can't even promise that they're going to get the help that they need. Because we can do the legal 2000, we can get them to the hospital and keep our fingers crossed that they're actually going to make it through the medical process and get cleared and make it to a mental health facility to try and get the help that they need. I think the, uh, well, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Um, you know, we, we talk about like easing the burden on the legal system and on the police and things like that. But, you know, we've had cases where we've had, uh, you know, um, where we've had to have the conversation with the family, we can't do anything until they act out or until they break the law or until they throw something through that window or, you know, and uh, you know, there was, there was one person that was a high utilizer and you know, the point where they took their significant other's cell phone and broke it and took away their car keys. We were like, we can finally do something with them now, you know? And unfortunately in a free society, sometimes it takes somebody you know, doing something that we can say, okay, now a law has been broken or now that they, you know, now they meet the criteria for us to intervene in a major way or, you know. And specialty courts, so Ryan brings it up in situations like that, we rely heavily on our specialty courts for that. 
you know, a court that is geared towards their mental health, a court that is geared toward their drug use, a court that is geared towards just the, the misdemeanor crimes that our homeless do so that we, they try and get the help and support that they need. But those specialty courts are small. You know, we need bigger ones. We need, oh, there's so much. I can go on and on. I think at the root of it too is that uh, another soapbox, our society has lost its ability to tolerate distress and not only our own distress with instant gratification and um, customization and all this stuff, but the ability to tolerate distress in oneself immediately translates to ability to tolerate somebody else's distress and watch them hit their own rock bottom and everybody's rock bottom is different. And the way that you protract and delay hitting the rock bottom is removing the ability to be in distress, right? So if we take it back to parenting, for example, if every time my kid falls down, I don't let him tolerate the disappointment and the fear and the frustration of scraping his knee. And I immediately scoop him up and say, there, there, it's okay. Stop crying. And I shut down his emotional processing. He never learns that he can push through that. So the next time something like that happens, his brain literally doesn't know that it can tolerate it. And so broadly across culture now, we've got this um, very well-intentioned desire, as we've, we've spoken to earlier, to jump in front of other people's distress before it even happens. And we're not willing to let, let them go through it because there is no get around or pass over or avoid. It's you got to go through it. And because we don't want to watch them go through it because it's miserable to do that, we just want to help them avoid it. And we can't do that all the time. And now and now we get things like, you know, zero risk for um, adverse events and, um, you know, s- stopping things before they happen. And and that's where red flag laws come in. It's right. We're, we're not minority report here. Uh, well, you know, he said he would do something. Yeah, but he didn't. Let's let's take away his freedoms. <laughs> let's throw him in a hospital or throw him in a cage or take away his guns or whatever pleasurable activity. And that goes to to driving, right? That's what kicked this whole thing off was like, you know, elders and their ability to drive. And wouldn't someone just do something? It's like, yeah, well, we need some quantifiable criteria by which we can do this. And nobody's willing to chalk those up and and then execute them because guess what? When we do it, we're going to have to watch somebody going through distress, take away somebody's guns, especially if they're a protective factor for suicide. Like, yeah, you know, shooting in the desert really alleviates my PTSD or my anxiety symptoms. We take that away. Now we're going to watch them go through distress of a different kind. And, and, and you know, take somebody's car keys away. That's a removal of freedom. It's a removal of privilege. It's all these things. And we're going to have to watch them go through the distress of not being able to get around on their own. And, oh, by the way, we're going to have to provide them resources by which they now get around. So, I, I don't know. It's I, well, I said the, it was a soapbox. Also the fear, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also the fear of, um, you know, the, the person coming forward with a mental health issue and sure. saying, you know, um, when I was in college, I, you know, started cutting myself. And now I'm 45 and I'm in a completely different place in my life. And now I can't... Uh, have a firearm and go to the range with my friends and go shooting on Sunday afternoon. We, we, you know? we've actually had that. We've had people contact us with that same, that same story. Uh, <laughs> out of, one is particularly out of New York state where they have the safe act. <laughs> uh, yeah. but it was one of those things where, you know, that was not going to happen again. It was something he did when he was younger at a different time period in his life. He actually was the one who checked himself in to get the help that he needed. He did the right thing. And then we made him wear a scarlet A. 
You know what I mean? And that's, that's, that's a horrible scenario to be in. But I, I, I have a question for you, um, Christy, because um, bef- before the show, we were kind of chatting and we, we got on the subject of um, the, the, I think it was an article that we had posted about um, in Denver, they're now having mental health clinicians show up to calls. And when you read this article, it just acted like it was the end all be all greatest thing in the world. And it's just saving lives and it's just making the world a better place and everybody's happy in the community. And you, you said something that kind of blew me away and I never thought about it from that angle. So I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on why you don't necessarily like that idea, because I think once again, the average person is under this, this belief that this is, that's the perfect example of how it fixed all this issues with the police officers. Sure. So I, I do believe in like the clinician and, and peer going out on their own for case management type things, follow-up, but in a critical crisis incident, it is, I do not believe it's a good idea. Um, I've done that before. And so it ended up with me being in a, in a home with an individual that I'd worked with for probably five years. Um, Thought I knew her, but there were substances involved. And so literally there was two of us. Luckily my partner was able to get out and call, but law enforcement literally had to come and kick down the door to get me out. And that was because we went by ourselves to a crisis call. There's a huge difference, a huge difference, you know, that peer support and that clinician going out, doing some case management connection, connecting people to services afterwards. I think that's, that's a great idea. But if you want that mental health professional there in a crisis, this is me, this is just Christy talking. I believe that there should be law enforcement there as well. How do we determine what is and is not a crisis? Well, I think that's a really good question because we have so many family members who are upset because their their family members in crisis because they haven't taken their meds for three days, right? And so it's difficult for us to say, I'm sorry, that actually isn't a crisis, right? Not taking your medication is not a crisis. Unfortunately, it's when they haven't taken it for a month and then their mania returns, that's when it's a crisis, right? Um, so if somebody's actively suicidal, that's a crisis. No mental health clinician by themselves should go to a call where somebody's actively suicidal, where they just literally cut themselves, they have a gun, absolutely no time do I think a mental health clinician should go out by themselves because somebody has a gun and they're suicidal, right? You just don't know how it's going to go. And if there's substances involved, it's so unpredictable. And I can tell you just personal experience, the law enforcement that I work with, they're amazing. Their de-escalation skills, everything that they do, um, they go there and they use those skills on those calls with us. It's a team approach, which I don't think I've said, and, and Ryan, I would think that you would agree, but it is literally a team approach when we are together to go out and handle these calls. Yeah. There's so many times where I, I, I look at my, at the officer I'm with and I say, wow, I'm really glad you're here. And they look mm-hmm. at me and they say, wow, I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> you know, um, you know I, I appreciate having them there and, and they've told me that they appreciate having me. So I, I, before that situation with myself, there was another, uh, 
uh, another clinician and I, we had gone out and it was a, we come across a lot of mothers um, and sons type situations, right? Sons with schizophrenia and just sitting there talking to this individual, he changed his whole demeanor changed. Everything changed. He stood up. The paranoia was very active. And I thought, Oh crap, here we go. You know? And so luckily we were able, we were able to leave. And that was just a a typical follow-up. This wasn't even a crisis, you know, a crisis call. So luckily we were able to leave. We kept the door in sight and we walked out and we left, but that could have turned bad. You know, sometimes just having that law enforcement there in that uniform. And I have seen it happen. Individuals who are extremely psychotic, they see that uniform and they know that uniform. They know what that means. And they're less likely to be as aggressive when that uniform is there. Now, not every time, but just my experience. I want to go ahead, Mike. Sorry, Jake. I want I want to just point out something that she said that is very important for the listening audience. And, and when I say the listening audience, I mean the portion that is uh, part of the gun industry or pro 2A, because we tend to do things like this. We go. The reason why we have these mass shooters is because of these damn medications that everybody is. And we stigmatize people that need medication. Right. And I'm a big believer in don't do that. Right. Because there's so many variables to everything. Um, and I, I have this saying, I say, you know, no one, you know, people say, well, Mike's off his meds. No one ever says like, stay away from Mike. He's on his meds. Right. And I, I think that's important to understand that we can't, there's just no easy answer for what we want when it comes to these situations. But you instead, Hey, we've had calls where someone got off their medication. It's not a, it's not a, a total crisis, but in three days, like they're, Something may be happening, but this is the danger of, of stigmatizing people that take medication because they don't want to take their medication after you do it. You read my so mind, I by the way. Important. I wanted to point that out. You read my mind. Thank you for going there. <laughs> no problem. I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard it for, from, from my side, and I say my side, guys, because it's like the two, you know, I'm in the firearms industry and we want the easy answer. Well, they, they just did that because of their meds. They're on these weird meds. You know, it's, it's, so wrong. It is, it is a, a true fear from a lot of family members. You know, the amount of, we even put in our presentations, that is not a crisis when somebody stops taking their medication. You know, it's, and it's not the be all end all. It is, there's so much more involved, but we don't do that. We throw the meds at them and then there's no follow-up. There's no follow-through. There's no, hey, are you seeing somebody? You're kidding. What's your support system, right? And so, we have family members that are just, they're desperate and they don't know what to do. And then they become upset with us because why can't you make them take their meds? I mean, yeah, it could be a, a whole day panel on just medication and, and family support and community support. Let that all sink in everybody. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, I agree. And I, I think I always say there's so many variables, right? Like how many people do you guys see that, like don't take their medication properly or they'll take their medication and then they'll, they'll go on drinking binges, you know, or they'll go party with uh, their friends. And you're like, if we're really trying to figure out if this works, you need to keep like that in diary and, and watch what you're eating and watch, you know, be real. Like, let's find out if the medication works for you. And I think a lot of people ruin that um, simply by, you know, they say, Oh, it didn't work for me. Well, it's like, yeah, man, we were down at the strip. Like, you know, we were at at one of the clubs down there and you were hammered. (laughs) Like that probably didn't make you feel good for a few days. You know, those, or or you're also, you're also self-treating with marijuana while you're taking your, 
bipolar medication or your antidepressants or, you know, it's like, well, it's hard to tell what the effects of the medication are going to be if you're also drinking or also getting reefed every night. But another thing, a really important thing about medication is, so say I'm bipolar, I'm taking my meds, nothing else is on board. No alcohol, no THC, no nothing, right? I'm getting older. I'm female. I have a cycle. Our body changes, right? This medication that I'm on might be rocking it for three or four years, and then something in my body is going to change. And then my medication has to change, and you start that process all over again. So it can be a very vicious cycle. So one of the, you know, I had alluded to my my past relationship. Um, you know, one of the issues that I had with with my ex, and 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 when I'm saying this, this isn't coming from a place with a I'm an angry. You know, we I actually have a really good relationship with my ex. We have a very co- good co-parenting plan, and I always want the best for her. But I always just draw on the examples. Uh, when, how much of it do you see as mental health crisis, and then how much of it do you see as like a, a substance abuse thing, right? Because people would always ask me, "What is wrong?" And I would go, "I don't know. I don't know if she she's having issues with schizophrenia or if it's this the Adderall addiction, where she would, you know." I, I know there's no easy answer for you to, um, you know, cause it's just like, well, what, do you, what are you supposed to know? Right. But like if we could get somebody off of the pills or the drugs, then we have a better, you know, I, yeah. Well, I, 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 I mean, I'll jump in and I'll just say that I have, I have yet to encounter somebody in, in our profession who says that there is such a thing as a standalone substance abuse problem. Because you don't just acquire a substance abuse problem without something leading to it. So there could be an addiction to something prescribed, which, um, and, and a lot of times there's a whole cocktail of stuff on board. And I've advocated for people to titrate down, get a clear baseline of who they are. Cause a lot of times they're adults who were prescribed at six years old and never got off it. Now they're 34 and they literally have gone through childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. Now they're in full adulthood and they have been on medication and in a fog their entire life. They don't know who they are. So yeah, it's establishing a clear baseline is very important. That's a heck of a lift too. Um, but I, to, to, to bifurcate that, I think invites a false dichotomy that it's either or, and and almost almost always it's not. Um, it would be nice to have people sober, yes, for sure. Um, but I see it as a symptom, not a problem. Most of the time, yeah. substance abuse. I don't is. know the baseline of half the people that I've dealt with for the past almost nine years. You know, and whether if we if and I mean baseline for mental health, if we can remove the substance use from them, you know, there's times where I'm like with the jail, Hey, when they're getting out of jail, let me know. Cause I know they've been in there for 30 days. And so I want to know what their baseline is without substances on board. So we know what we're working with, but that's difficult to do to get them from jail and clean and sober before they hit the streets again. But I, there's so many people that I encounter that I don't know what their baseline is because of the substance use involved, which makes it very difficult to find out what it is that they need. Yeah. Have you- in, in, in our profession, like one of, one of the, one of the first things they teach you, you know, in, in addiction class is that, you know, when you, when you are asking somebody to give up mm-hmm. treating themselves with 
alcohol or treating themselves with marijuana or something, you know, you're asking them to give up something they've been using to get by for a long, long time, you know, and even though it's not working and they're blowing their lives up and it's clear to everybody, that's what they've been leaning on, you know? And so that's a very scary thing for them. The other thing is, 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 you know, when, when I, when I find that somebody has been using or abusing, you know, the first thing I ask myself is how are they feeling that they would rather feel any other way? You know, how, how do they normally feel right. that they would rather be high or drunk or, you know, uh, under, under the influence of something? Um, and so they're, you know, I've, I've met one, I've worked with one addict who said I started using and then started using a little bit more and started using a little bit more and I found myself addicted. You know, almost always, it's always been they were self-treating for something, depression, bipolar disorder, something. Hmm. I want to I want to switch gears to maybe something a little bit more positive. I'm sure both of you have um, these kind of like walk off home run stories, right? Where like if you ever gone into a situation and really just nailed it and like kind of blew by the cops, <laughs> got in there and and saw like this success story that continued on or does it end that night? Like, in, you know. Well, I think, well, this is an extreme one. So um, there was the call out of a suicidal male. So he had the knife in his stomach, but he had the door barricaded. And so in situations like that, we're not like right in front of the door. I was off around the side, around kind of the corner in the stairwell, listening to the conversation. And so the lieutenant would come and say, well, is there anything, you know, we should try as you're listening to the conversation. So um, just engaging and giving, offering advice from what I was hearing of that conversation, they were able to actually get him to open the door and get him out um, to get the help. Otherwise it was like, you know, open the door, open the door, we're coming, you know, that kind of a thing. So um, that one was a good one. Ryan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I think my favorite story is uh, I had I had been working for maybe a couple months and and with the police department and they were still kind of figuring out like what what I was there for and and how I could help and and things like that. And um, we got a call because it was after hours that someone was at the front door of the police station and they needed to talk to an officer. And so I I was sitting in the patrol room and so I just said okay I'll I'll walk up there with you you know and so we went up there. And sometimes people are there just to say that their neighbor's not picking up their dog poop or something, you know, but this, this, uh, this woman uh, is, is on the steps of the police station and she has a jacket and, and she says, I just want to be done. I want to be better. And she starts unloading all these drugs and drug paraphernalia and, and just on, on the steps of the police station. And she looks up at the cop like, well, is this, is this the point where I get cuffed and stuffed? Because that's been my experience, you know, the last five years, you know, like, like I could just read that on her face, you know. And he kind of like shrugs his shoulders and looks at me and I said, hey, this is what we can do. Like what, you know, you want to be done? Let's, let's do this like right now. And, and, and so we started, you know, figuring out where we could take her, where, you know, where she could go. And um, you could tell like she'd never had that experience before. It was always like, a, you know, she'd always gone down the legal uh, the, you know, the law enforcement, um, you know, path every time, she, you know, she'd, she'd been in the presence of an officer with all, with all of her drugs and, and everything. And you could tell that was a new experience for her. The, the other thing is, is um, I get to work with a lot of new officers and we have a program where college students who want to be officers can, um, can work for the summer. Um, 
sort of as interns and, 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 um, um, and so they get to experience, you know, their entire profession, they get to experience having mental health be a part of policing, of, of community policing. And so from day one, so it's not like they've been doing this job for 20 years and now we have mental health people coming in. For them, from day one, they, they get to have mental health be a part of their police training and, and their, you know, community policing experience. And that's, that's really cool. So I, had, I guess I have two stories. Yeah, that's, that, that is really cool. And I, 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 I'm very impressed by, you know, Jake knows this. I, I love this because I'm not a mental health clinician. I'm just a punk kid from Jersey who started, you know, was in the gun industry and then started this thing, but it's kind of overlapped into it. Um, but I've always told people, like people ask me all the time, like, what's the difference? And I'm like, I can't explain the high you get when you know you're helping people. Right. It's like one of the reasons why I kept going forward with Walk Talk America was because I would speak at these events and I'd have these uh, gun industry people come forward and they would have like tears in their eyes. And there's like, thank you so much. Like, I, I love that you're saying this. And we're talking three years ago. Right. Like we're still very taboo. But like for you, the three of you. Right. Like it's got to just be the highest of high when you know you've like I said, it's that walk off moment where it's just like I just made a difference in this person's life. Um, I can see it in their face. They're going to try to get better. You know what I mean? They're going to work towards it. They have hope. Like you almost instill some hope in people. You do it for the police officers too. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it must be an amazing feeling. We show what's possible too, to the people who are the uninitiated, if you will. And, and that's pretty cool. Um, especially when, they observe you interacting with somebody who previously maybe on multiple other interactions, you know, thinking police officers or corrections officers in the prison, for example, uh, teachers also, you know, that kid is so incorrigible and, and you go and you talk to the person and you get, comp- you get them to, to follow what you do or what you asking. And then, and then, uh, and then behavior change occurs mm-hmm. and they're, they look at it like, like it's some parlor trick. Like, like you, you, uh, practice this thing backstage and then just like unfolded it and they're like, show me your ways. And what's really rewarding is when you can teach other people how to do it. I think that's the best part. It's not a parlor trick. You're not Jedi's. <laughs> not in so far as I am aware. Not during the day. You never wear a cape when you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really more of a robe. Um, but I, I, I want to address something before we uh, cut off because I, I know we're getting a little long and I want to be respectful of everybody's time. But Christy, you mentioned something earlier about like the presence of the uniform tends to gain compliance. Mm-hmm. And I've done a series of interviews in the other podcasts that I do, Naga Notes, about um, how communities of color don't have the same impression. Mm-hmm. And it actually can have the opposite reaction because authority in minority communities has often been associated with not only authoritarianism, but violence and restriction and removal of rights and oppression. And I'm wondering about how when you interact with communities of color or otherwise traditionally oppressed or marginalized individuals, how you use the person in the uniform with the badge and the bat belt Mm -hmm. um, or don't because you've assessed that this may escalate rather than de-escalate. Well, there's so many variables involved. It really depends on the situation and the officer. Um, And I think that um, 
I've never had to experience that and see that with the gazillion times that I've been out. Like I said, I, I don't, I'm very fortunate. I work with great law enforcement and the, I'll, I'll be straight up honest. I have literally had to walk away from some calls and tell the officers, I will be outside. I will be in the patrol car because I can't watch this from how they're treated. I mean, the way some people respond and talk to law enforcement, anybody in uniform, I've actually never seen it with fire, but law enforcement, there's no way. My mama would have tore me up. There's no way. I literally have to walk away because I want to say something like, Mike, just all you got to do is answer the questions, you know? So I have been very fortunate. The law enforcement that I work with, super patient, super understanding, and always trying to de-escalate. So I've had, I've had good, good experiences. We do have a good law enforcement community here. We, we are very, yes. very fortunate in this community. Ryan, what's, what's been your experience there? I, I tell people I, I take a lot of pride in living in a community where I've seen our police officers get a call for um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a person of color in our neighborhood and I know they don't live here and they're walking down the street. And I've seen them say, is, is there some kind of crime going on? Is there some kind of mischievous behavior? No. I've seen them say, okay, call cleared, no action, like, and go on to the next call. Like I've, I've seen them just be like, no, you know, and, and I've seen that many, many times. I'm, I'm proud to live in a community where that's awesome. You know, where they've just been like, no, you don't recognize that person in your neighborhood. I'm not, you know? Um, so yeah, it's not a, it's not a crime not to be recognized. Yeah. So we, you know, so we, um, yeah, and I can also proudly say that I, I feel like we've made a lot of inroads with our uh, Hispanic community, uh, with our black community. And, and uh, my, I, I feel like we're starting to project an image that when the cops show up, it's it, people aren't necessarily getting cuffed and stuffed. People aren't necessarily getting tased. People aren't necessarily getting arrested. Like we're here to figure out like, what do you need? And if Ryan can help you or if the officer can help you or, you know, like, you tell us, like, how can we, how can we help, you know? And so I feel like, you know, hopefully there's a generation of kids coming up who see their, their uh, school resource officer as someone who says, Hey, let me call Ryan and he can, he can, you know, um, go over to your apartment and, and talk to your parents about this or, you know, um, you know, and so I, I feel like we, we're, you know, changing the image. Um, but, you know, for, 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 you know, all races, all, all ethnic groups, um, you know, like we're, we're just able to show up and say, okay, you know, we're here to, to either get you to, to treatment or the hospital or whatever you need. Like, we're not here to cuff and stuff people. Um, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll do that if that's necessary. They enforce the law. That's what law enforcement does. But, um, but I, you know, I feel like our community is, is really surprised, pleasantly surprised that, uh, you know, when we go on scene, I, I hear people all the time say, wow, this is great that you have this, you know, th- this available, um, you know, and so I, I, I hope that there's kind of a generational shift or generational change, at least in our community, that every time the police shows up, it's not, you know, to, to strong arm anybody, um, you know, it, that, that we want to get you the services you need. And, and I feel like we've been sending that message. That's really encouraging. And I'll tell you why. I think not only it, does it send a message of equality 
under the law, but also under the profession. I think you guys have done an excellent job in this conversation of um, if there are clinicians listening or junior clinicians listening who, who now maybe want to join your ranks, right? We've provided another option besides work for government in the, in the clinics, work for hospitals, go into private practice. It's like, no, now you can, now you can do this other thing out there too. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, mental health in schools and there's mental health in law enforcement. And I think, I think we're starting to really open the doors to what our profession really could do besides, you know, the slug it out face to face bill insurance for your fee for service, you know, activity. Um, there's so many other ways we can reach people as licensed professionals. That's really, really inspiring to me. Dave, I, I hope it's inspiring to other people. Dave, can I say just real quick, because I know you want to end here. I would encourage, though, any newbies coming up to work for the government, to work in those mental health facilities, yeah. so that if you do go this route and you're doing crisis, you will understand what our population experiences. You will know why they are afraid sometimes to go back into a lockdown facility. Yeah. I think it's I think it's hugely important. It makes you more well-rounded if you're able to do um, some work in those environments as well. I agree, and I and I'm not trying to rush the ending because Mike, I know, still has one question left that he asks of everyone. Anyway, yes, that's true. So, uh, Christy and Ryan, you, the work you're doing is amazing. Um, you know, for being in the in the weeds and, and going out on the calls, being understaffed being underpaid massively. I need you guys to take that. That's for you to take that to somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how do you tend to your mental health? Ooh. <laughs> so I can say, uh, I just bought a Peloton. So that I, that's for me. I do not, I want somebody to yell at me, tell me what to do working out wise. And um, so now I got a Peloton. I don't have to go to the gym and pay for it. Now I have the Peloton and they just tell me what to do on a little screen as I pedal away. So that's my self-care. Exercise. You get out there and kind of burn it all off. Nice. Yep. Yep. I have a lot of interests that I, that I do. So I, um, I, I teach um, psychology at a, uh, on a live stream um, to colleges uh, in other states. Um, so I just, I find that enjoyable. And, and so it's a chance to not be working in the clinic, but it's a chance to still be working in my field, but um, uh, kind of, you know, in a different way. Um, and just, you know, strong boundaries. Um, you know, like I don't, I don't check my phone or pick it up until the day I'm coming on shift. And I tell people like, I'll, you know, I'm coming on on Wednesday and that's when I'll get to your message, you know? And so just, you know, really strong boundaries. Um, and I, and I teach some classes over at the, uh, the health club, um, that's in my neighborhood. And, um, you know, so I, I try to, um, just do different things that don't have anything to do with, um, you know, with, with, with what I'm doing when I'm on shift. Excellent. Thank you very, very much to both of you, uh, not only for coming on, but for the work that you do, because it, it, it is innovative. And I know, Chris, you're like, I've been doing this for nine years, but it hasn't been in the public eyeball for nine years. Um, right. And how long have you been doing what you're doing? Uh, I've, I've been part of this program going on uh, three years. It'll be three years here in a few months. Um, and I've been a, a professional counselor for almost 10 yeah, more of this. I think we need more innovation. So um, thank you for sharing the the testimonies and the 
uh, the, the foibles as well as the successes. I think it's really inspiring and it's encouraging and it gives us a, an idea about where we could take this mission and this, this uh, I guess, this field, if you will. And as we bring together the cultures of those who are stigmatized, including gun owners, and those who uh, are carrying the field that can release some of that stigma, us, um, we, we encourage more dialogue and, and camaraderie. So appreciate it. Thank you very much. I want to thank our sponsor, Arms Corps, for continuing to support what we do. Go to armscore.com to find out more about what they do with all their uh, really cool 1911s and their ammunition that they produce, very high quality. Thanks to Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own here in Reno, Nevada. And uh, thanks to all you listeners, because without you, we, uh, we couldn't do this. So continue to share this around and invite other people to join the conversation. And uh, on behalf of all of our family here at Walk Talk America, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care. We were at, at one of the clubs down there and you were hammered. I have not gone nude.